Thank you guys for leading us in worship again, and thank you for being here this morning. I know it's, uh, I don't know what you call this time of year between the two holidays, but I'm glad you're here, and, and I know God has something good in store for us because we're gathered as His people. And, and, and if anything has been clear to us in 2020 is the value of this, and all you got to do is just experience a time where it's taken away, and you realize how much of a blessing it is. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke. Um, I want to greet you. My name is Lowell, in case you don't know that, and I serve here as one of the pastors, and it's my privilege today to open up God's Word. So that last, that song that you just sang um, really is where we started this little series that we're in. We're, uh, we're preaching through a small series as we got ready for Christmas, and we looked at what we called the Christmas songs of the Bible, and we started in Revelation chapter 5, and that song that you just sang was taken from Revelation 4 and 5, and it was there that we began uh, with a look at the incarnation, and the reason we started there, which is really talking about a future event. You know, if you're in Christ, one day you will be there in the throne room of God, and you will sing those words. And we started there when we began to look at the incarnation, when God came and took on flesh and lived here among us, God with us. We wanted to start in Revelation chapter 5 because without the incarnation, you and I could never be there in that moment. I mean, God could have had that moment without us. He created the angels who worshiped, and they were, they were they're created worshipers. And He could have just had that moment without humans. But he chose in his grace to really provide a way for you and I to worship him. And so how fitting for us to start there as we look at Christmas songs in your scripture. We're in the Gospel of Luke. There's several of these songs that are there in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're going to be focusing on verses 29 to 32 in just a moment. We've been talking about the fact that Christmas is all about worship. It's all about worship. But we're at an interesting time, and we're wrapping up 2020, and I appreciate Pastor Billy as well, pushing us to think about the, the highlights from 2020. I don't know how it happened, but somehow my family became subscribers to Time Magazine. It comes to my house now once a week. I never remember asking for it. I don't think I paid for it. I don't know how it's happened, but it arrives at my house every single week. And this week, I, I picked up the latest uh, edition um, I don't usually read it cover to cover, but the cover usually grabs my attention. And this week it was this. Maybe you saw it. 2020, the worst year ever. 2020, the worst year ever. I mean, it's been hard for some. It's been a challenge. But to call 2020 the worst year ever? I think reveals, honestly, a couple things. It requires an ignorance of history, quite honestly. And it requires a lack of understanding of the goodness of our God. So I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about how, how is it that we can live in a time of turmoil and, and struggle where some people would even say it's the worst year ever. And we can still have peace and hope and joy. That's our topic for today. Before I get into it, I want to go to the Lord as a group in prayer. And I want us to remember to pray for, um, in particular this morning, I want us to pray for Fellowship Bible Church. Now, let me just kind of give you a little bit of an update on our relationship with Fellowship Bible Church. Fellowship Bible Church is located in Jefferson County. 
Um, they were also uh, closely connected with the church that sent us out uh, going on 13 years ago to start Centerpoint Bible Church. The pastor of Fellowship Bible Church is a man named Van Marceau, who was a personal mentor in my, of mine. Pastor Billy Hearn was the youth pastor at Fellowship Bible Church. Um, Fellowship Bible Church was very influential in allowing us to uh, purchase this building. And without their partnership, we wouldn't be here in this building. At least I don't know how it would have happened. So we definitely have a relationship with Fellowship. And there right now, it's kind of their turn to deal with COVID. Um, we need to pray for them. Uh, like many other churches uh, in our community over the last couple of weeks, and even right now, they're not able to meet on Sunday morning. Uh, they had to cancel the candlelight services and so forth. Uh, we want to pray for Fellowship this morning, that God would continue to do a few things, even in the midst of this time where they can't meet as a body. First of all, that God's people would meet each other's needs. You know, they can't come together as a body, and a lot of us aren't able to be here, either because of quarantine or concerns over COVID. But yet we need to pray for fellowship and also pray for ourselves that we meet each other's needs, that we come alongside each other, reach out to one another. That if you notice somebody isn't here today, who was here last week, that we reach out to them. We need to pray that way for fellowship, that they would, they would practice that among their body. Pray that their, pray that their people will continue to give towards the ministry because, as you know, churches are supported by the, by, the giving, by the gifts and offerings of their people. And so as they go through this time where they're not able to meet, that the Lord would provide for them. And then pray for safety and protection for their staff. Many of their staff have been impacted by COVID, and so we want to pray for them. And honestly, as we pray for them, as I've already kind of alluded to, we need to remember, if we go through this kind of a time, there, it may be that in the coming weeks, we have to do something like that. We have to close things down because of COVID. If that were to happen, pray for our church, that we would meet each other's needs, that our financial obligations would be met, and pray for protection for, for our body. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer now. Father, we do thank you for the blessing that you have brought into our life, Lord, through your son, Jesus. We have celebrated his coming to the earth this week, this month. We gather here on Sunday morning to celebrate the reality that you conquered death through resurrecting from the grave. We celebrate that today. We want to lift up Fellowship Bible Church and Van and Everett and Tim and Mark, the rest of those that serve over there, their families, that have, the, the people of their church that have been impacted by this. God, would you protect them? Would you provide for them? Would you, would you prod their people to encourage one another, to check on each other, to reach out? And Lord, if the day comes that Centerpoint goes through this kind of a time, would you just make your grace sufficient? Father, now we're going to open up your word. You know us, Lord. We can be dull people, slow to respond, quick to anger. Lord, we, are, we can be all turned around. So would you just write us today? Give us a sense of what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2020, worst year ever. Again, I said, that's only your thought if you're not aware of, honestly, the trial and turmoil that humanity has gone through. Let me just give you a couple possibilities. So just on a Google search, I did, what is the worst year ever? Enter. And just, I'll just share with you some of the results that I got. 
One person said it would have been 1943 or 1944 when about 75 million people died during World War II, the height of the military effort and the Holocaust. Genocide, massacres, mass bombings, disease, starvation. One group said maybe it was the Spanish flu. It was 1918. World War I is going on. But also, now listen to this number, one half of 1% of the, of the United States population died from the Spanish flu. One half of 1%. You say, well, that doesn't really sound like very much. Well, in 2020, it was one-tenth of 1% of Americans died from COVID. Spanish flu was one, let me get my number here, yeah, one-half of 1%. We've been one-tenth. One person said it was 536. Remember that year? This was the worst year to be alive, according to the Scientific American magazine. Science magazine said that 536 was the worst year to be alive. Now, I don't know what happened in 536, but according to this article, there were natural disasters, a volcano in Iceland, there was plagues and local local wars, and it was the worst year to be alive. Hmm, I don't know. 1347, the bubonic plague hit. And listen to this, 60% of the Europeans died that year. Now, I bring all that up to say, we need to keep things in perspective. As we close 2020, and we look back on it, and when one of our pastors say, think about a highlight of 2020, and we kind of snicker and like, man, I don't know, are there any? I mean, this has been the worst year ever. Now, I don't want to minimize the struggle that maybe some of you have gone through. People have definitely passed away. There definitely have been some challenges. People have been been impacted economically, and people have been impacted socially, and, and their families have been impacted, and their careers have been. I understand it's been a hard year for many. But we have to keep it in perspective. Because here's the reality. Really, your personal experience of struggle is often divorced or separated from that of societal or national struggle. And so some of us in this room have gone through very difficult times this year, and others of us have not. But regardless, regardless, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on God and trusting His plan. And today, the Christmas song that we're going to look at is spoken by a man who I would challenge you that is going through harder times than we have. But yet he has hope. And he has joy. And he has peace. I mean, what if things in your home, marriage, job, life are not at peace? What if that's true of you? Your marriage is not at peace. Your home is not at peace. Your job is not. Is peace still possible? What, what if things don't go the way you hoped? Okay, like in your education, in your career, in your parenting, things don't go quite the way you hoped they would. Is hope possible then? What if you wake up tomorrow and you realize that you're not as happy as you thought you might have been? You know, at the end of Christmas, you're not as happy. At the end of vacation, you're not as happy. During your marriage, you're not as happy. With your children, you're not as happy. In your career, you're not as happy. Is joy still possible? Is our peace and hope and joy 
so tied with a metal chain to what we're going through that if we're not experiencing exactly what we want, then we can't have hope, peace, and joy. In verse number 29 of Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at a man, at the song of a man who had obstacles to peace, obstacles to hope, obstacles to joy. But he experienced and he demonstrates that he's experiencing those very things. His worship rose above the circumstances of his day where he experienced what he was designed to experience. Hope in Christ. Joy in Christ. Peace in Christ. Let's just read his song first of all, okay? We're going to read verses 29 to 32. And these are, now again, we've talked about this before. This is not a song. He didn't grab a guitar and sing this, I don't think, all right? He spoke this in a poetic form as God's Spirit really inspired him to do that. And Luke recorded it for us. You can identify these four songs in the Gospel of Luke by the way that the the margins are laid out. You can see them there in Luke 1 and in Luke 2. Four of these songs. We call them that because they're simply poetry rather than prose. We don't pick up on the poetry in English because, because rhyming and those kind of things, that's not the only thing that makes a poem. And poems don't translate so well from one language to another. So let's read what he uttered. Verse number 29. Lord, Simeon said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for for glory to your people, Israel. And his, being Jesus' father and his mother, marveled at what was said about him. Now that's the poem. It's short, it's sweet, it's direct. And as we've been, I think, modeling in our study of these poems over the last month, when you're studying a poetic section of Scripture, in order to understand the feeling and the the emotion of this poem, you have to understand the context. You've got to understand what's going on. What's Simeon experiencing? What is his life like? What are his day and day out, what's it look like for him? And how, does, how might he be feeling when he utters this? What's going through his mind? Why is he worshiping as he is in this moment? I want us to see that. Now, if you look up at verse number 21, just to get the broader context, verse number 21, chapter 2, verse 21, it says, at the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, He was called Jesus, so this is where Jesus was given his name formally, eight days in, circumcised and named. That's the tradition, that's the the Jewish tradition of this day. The name given, so Jesus received the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. In verse number 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is Joseph and Mary following the Old Testament law for what they are to do at the birth of this son, at the birth of this firstborn son. They're directed in the law to go to the temple and to make sacrifices in recognition that God has blessed them. 
in recognition that everything they have is really the fruit of what God has done in their life. They're to give a special offering because it's a firstborn son. And the Israelites understood from the Old Testament that God required of them their firstborn. Their firstborn son was given to God. And so for some, that meant they would go into the priesthood. For others, it meant that their parent would come and give an offering and say, this child's supposed to be yours, but we're going to give this offering and we're going to raise him up. And so that's what's going on here. Now we can see what their offering was, okay? If you look down at verse number 24, and to the, they offered to sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they bring a couple of birds. Now what does that mean? It means that they're poor is what that means. The offering that they bring is that given for those that are in poverty. See, the law, God in his law gave a, an allowance for those that couldn't afford a, a more expensive sacrifice. So they bring a couple of birds, and their, their, their lives are taken. Because again, what's happening is God has given the law to, to beat into our slow minds that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Mary and Joseph are not saved because they brought these birds to be sacrificed. They're not saved by the sacrifice. They're saved by what Jesus would do. So the sacrifice of these birds is just to remind them that God would be faithful and God would cover their sin. God would take away their sin through the coming Christ. So that's what's happening here. Now, verse number 25, though. We now bump into our songwriter, our artist for this morning. And in order to understand the context of, of that poem that we read... What we're going to do is we're going to compare and contrast two groups of people. So I've got this up on the screen for you. We're going to look at a comparison of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 and the aristocracy in Matthew chapter 2 of the religious sort of leaders of that day. Okay, so if you'll go with me to Matthew chapter 2, let me show you that. Just go ahead and turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, what we're going to look at here is there's this whole group of people, and, and they are the religious aristocracy of the day. They are the who's who of the religion of that day, and they're running the show, and Simeon sitting in the temple that they're in charge of. And so in order to understand what's going on in Simeon's mind, what I'd like us to do is take a quick look in Matthew chapter 2 at those who are ruling because it will shed light on Simeon's experience. You get, what I'm, get where we're headed here. We look at Matthew 2 at three groups of people to shed light on a true follower of God. His name is Simeon. So chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, let me just remind you of something that you probably have heard before. Matthew chapter 2 is likely a year or two after the birth of Jesus. This is not there in the, with the manger and the, you know, no room for the inn and that kind of stuff, Okay. The reason why we know that is because the words used to describe Jesus are words used for a toddler, not an infant. So some time has gone by, and Mary and Joseph are there in Bethlehem. And these wise men, you remember that, right? They brought three gifts or whatever it might be. They came to, to see Jesus, sent by God, following the star. You know, you know the details. 
And they come and they, they're looking, they, they seek out Herod and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now look at verse number three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He's troubled. His spirit is, is burdened. What is this? He, he's not troubled like he's seeking him. He's troubled this is happening in his kingdom. How can this be? The Christ? The king? In my kingdom? So he calls these groups of people, the chief priests and the scribes. So I'm suggesting that's the religious aristocracy of that day. Herod, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now just to see where it goes, just so you know the, the remainder of this in account, look with me at verse number 16, what happens? The end of this horrible story. Then Herod, when he saw they had been tricked by the wise men, the wise men didn't do what he asked to do. He wanted them to direct them, the Herod and chief priests and the scribes, wanted the wise men to direct them to the child, but they didn't do that. They tricked him. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had heard ascertained from the wise men. This is a wicked, wicked man. Let's, let's look at the religious aristocracy and understand some things about them in that day so we can compare them and contrast them with Simeon. Herod was a narcissistic, murderous tyrant. He is called and he is serving as the king over the Jews. He wasn't a Jewish man. He was a puppet put in place by the Romans. Why? Because his ancestors before him had been victorious in the Roman army. And so the Roman leadership of the day said, Herod, we're going to put you as king over this place, Israel. Now you rule it with a, with a strong hand. And he did. And he was a, a madman. Herod was a madman. King of the Jews. He, he murdered much of his own family. Three of his own sons he killed. His mother-in-law killed. At his death, when Herod was on his deathbed, he demanded that the, the local leaders, the elders of Israel, would be arrested. They brought them there into Jerusalem. With this strict command, when Herod died, they were all to be murdered. All the elders of Israel murdered when Herod died. Why? Because he wanted there to be grieving in all of Israel when he passed. This is the king of the Jews ruling from Jerusalem where the old man Simeon sits. Now along with King Herod were the chief priests. Now you're familiar with the term priest. The, the, old, the Leviticus talks about the priesthood. Exodus talks about the priesthood. They're meant to be a descendant of the brother of Moses named Aaron with strict Levitical laws of what they're to practice there in the temple. But by this time, by the time that King Herod is ruling as a puppet, the priesthood means nothing. Quite honestly, it's a political appointment. Herod and his father before him figured out 
that whoever controlled the priesthood controlled the masses. And so they would place people in the role of high priest as they wanted to. So if you were willing to do the bidding of King Herod, why, they would make you chief priest. They'd make you the high priest over all of the, all of the religious system. And so that's who these chief priests are. That's who's running the temple where Simeon is sitting. He's sitting there in the temple, and this mockery of priesthood is behind him, going through the religious activities described in Leviticus, and they mean nothing. This means nothing to them. This is the aristocracy of the religious world that Simeon lives in. But there's a third group, and that's the scribes. Now, the scribes were kind of like, they were of the people. A lot of them were Pharisees. They were connected to the Pharisees, and, and they were experts at the law. When I say the law, I don't mean the rules. I mean the Old Testament. And they used it like a hammer against the public. They bullied and they strong-armed the, the masses of people with the law. And they would, they would create their own laws to add to the law, to push down the masses in order to raise up themselves. These are the people who are running the worship of Yahweh, of the Lord. And there sits Simeon, singing a worship song to God. Go to Simeon in the year zero at the end of the year and say, what was your highlight of zero? <laughs> I mean, he could certainly list a lot of negatives, couldn't he? But he broke out in song. In verse number five, you're in Matthew 2, just, just make reference to it. In verse number five and six, the scribes and the, and the chief priests and Herod, for that matter, Use the word of God to damage children. They use the Bible to identify Bethlehem and then go there and commit genocide against all those two years or younger. What a mockery. Now go back to Luke 2. and Let's look at our man, Simeon. I picture him being an old man, but we don't really know that. Scripture doesn't tell us how old he is, but in my mind, he's there all great and maybe shrinkled up from, wrinkled up from life. And he's singing out praises to God. And I want us to see, before we look at the words of his song, let's, let's look at what, what it is that holds this man together, okay? Let's, let's check him out as a person. So we'll start in verse number 25. Now notice what it says here. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Very common name. Simeon's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, it's a very common name of the day. And it says here that this man was righteous and devout. You know what that means? He's righteous and devout. That means he is a redeemed follower of God. That's what that means. He's a redeemed follower of God. He's very different than the scribes, the chief priests, and Herod. He's a true follower of God. He is righteous. Now, does that mean he's a good guy? Is that what that means? He's righteous and devout, so he's just a nice guy. He'd be a really good neighbor. You know, he'd come and like shovel your walk when it snowed and that kind of stuff. Is that what that means? No. That's not what it means. Now, he might have done those things, but that's not what that means. 
When the Old Testament scripture speaks of a man or a woman being righteous, here's what it means. It means they believed God and God credited them with righteousness. Because they believed God, he credited them with righteousness. So Simeon is a believer. He's a redeemed man. He's a new creature. He's saved. And the fact that Scripture calls him devout, what that word means, it means careful to follow. What does this mean? He's a saved man who's sanctified. Because when a person comes to Christ, Christ creates in them his character. That's called sanctification. So Simeon is a man who put his trust in Jesus and God's Spirit is conforming him to the image of God. That's what that means. He is a born-again man who's being conformed to the image of God. And I hope that's true of you today. Righteous and devout does not mean he was, was a good guy who was earning his way to God. No. The contrast between him and the aristocracy, why, it's blinding to see it. But that's not all. He's a man who's righteous and devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? Consolation means comfort. So what this means is he's longing for God to come and comfort his people, to bring peace to his people. And if you read on a little further, there's, there's, this, there's a repeated phrase that I want us to see. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. There it is. And it revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. There it is again. They would not see the death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. What does this mean? Not only was he a follower of God, a redeemed man of God, he was experiencing an intimacy with God. He was close to God. So how do I know that? Because many references here to the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit was speaking to his Spirit. Simeon is part of what the Bible refers to as the remnant of followers of God. That in the midst of this Jewish people, many of which had abandoned God, God kept the remnant for himself that were truly redeemed and truly connected to God and God's Spirit was working in their life. And Simeon is one of those. See, the Holy Spirit didn't come into existence in Acts chapter 2 when the church was built. Oh, no. The Spirit of God is eternal. He has always been, just like the Father, just like the Son. And throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is often at work in believers' lives. Now, it's different for us now. It's different. Because after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of us. He lived in us, took up residence in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where prior to that, God's Spirit would come upon people. But what we learn from this is that Simeon had a connection with God through his spirit. See, this is a true follower of God. Not like the aristocracy. Not those who were just in in, in name only. A true follower of the Lord. And then lastly, I'll just say this, that he was hopeful. Again, we're trying to get to where we're going to read his song, okay? We're trying to get to where we can read his song and understand. He was a follower of God. He had intimacy with God. He was hopeful in God. He's hoping on the consolation of Israel. He knows that God's Spirit's going to allow him to see the Christ. And he's hoping on God. I mean, can you just put yourself in Simeon's shoes? Or maybe his sandals? Can you get there in, in his flesh where 
he's surrounded by a system that's meant to be pointing to God, pointing to, to the true word of God. And it is filled with, with narcissistic people who are, who are, only, who, who are willing to murder to, to meet their own selfish needs. You think you have it bad. We think we've got it rough. Look where Simeon is at. But yet, he worships. And it is, it is a directed worship. Like, it's, a, it's an intelligent worship. It's an informed worship. I just ask, what song would you write as you look back on 2020? I mean, seriously, we, we kind of scoffed at highlights over 2020. But are you still standing redeemed in Christ? Does God still have your future? Sure. Are you still forgiven of your sin if you're in Jesus today? Has God allowed you to still continue to, to invest your life in what He is doing? Listen, if you're sitting here today, all those things are true. Our song. Our song should be one of praise and worship. You know, one of the things that strikes me, I'll just say this. I would think that Simeon could easily grumble and complain, wouldn't you? I mean, his song, it could have been, you know, this dirty, rotten Herod, what is he doing? And who elected him anyway? That's not what he did. Why, his song, he didn't even mention him. Didn't even mention Herod. Didn't even mention the mockery of the priesthood. Didn't even mention that there was no regard for God's word. Oh, be careful with grumbling and complaining. Listen, be careful with this. Because here's the reality about grumbling and complaining. You know, Scripture tells us not to grumble and complain, right? Here's the reality about grumbling and complaining. There's somebody who always hears your grumbling. And I'm not talking about the Lord. I'm talking about an earthly, a person on this earth, a human living here now. They always hear your grumbling. Every time you grumble and complain about politics, about work, about your kids, or about your spouse, or about your car, or about traffic, they hear it all the time. And you may not know it, but your grumbling and complaining is dragging them into a pit because they always hear it. I mean, every time you grumble, it's going right into their ear, and they hear it. And you don't maybe mean to, but you're a weight dragging them down into a pit. You know who that is? You know who it is who hears your grumbling every single time? You do. You do. You hear your grumbling. And it drags us down in a pit. And it says, I don't really trust God. I don't really trust you. I mean, after all, it shouldn't be this way. I should not have to wait at this red light for this long. It shouldn't be this way, God. And really, our grumbling and complaining is a, it's blasphemy against God. Saying you don't really know what you're doing. So be careful with it. You hear yourself. You hear your own self grumbling and it drags you 
into a pit. Simeon looked to God. He knew he was a follower of God, redeemed. He was experiencing the intimacy with Christ. His spirit was speaking to his heart. He looked forward to what God would do. His eyes were focused on what God was going to do in the future. The the future was just as sure as the present. And that's where his eyes were. And so all this stuff around him, I'm not saying he was ignorant to it. He was aware of all that. But he kept his eyes focused on God. And our future, what we know about our future, is much more informed than what his was. Much more informed. We know so much more about what God is going to do in the future. We can look there and keep our eyes fixed there and break out in song. Now, we're finally ready to look at his song, okay? So let's see what it is that he sung about. Simeon's words of worship, found in 29 to 32. First of all, it starts, the first thing I want you to see in verse number 29 is Simeon has peace in this new life vision that he has. He's got peace for what God is doing. God has unveiled for him. God has kind of broken these scales off of his eyes. He can see the future. And it's sure. And that brings him peace. Look what it says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, this depart in peace is a euphemism for death. That's what it means. It's why I believe he was an older man, okay? He's saying, I can die now in peace. It doesn't mean he's going to leave the temple. He's there in the temple courtyard. He's there in the temple area. And he's not saying, I'm going to get up and go home now. He's saying, I can now go to my grave in peace. How is that possible? How can we live our lives, old or young, in a way... That we can depart, we can face death in peace. I would suggest to you that that there are two aspects of Simeon's peace. You see them there in the word servant, your servant, and depart in peace. Your servant, see it there? Letting your servant depart in peace. Servant there is the Greek word doulos, it means slave. That's what it means. What this means is that. That Simeon is saying, my, the, my absolute existence is in submission to you. To be a slave means that you have no will of your own. No will of your own. Your will is totally submissive to the master. And for Simeon, he knew that he was totally submissive to the will of God. But secondly, he could depart in peace. He knew that when he left this earth he would go in the presence of God and have peace with God. So that's the two aspects of peace we need to understand. And I hope that you have. First of all, a peace with a vertical peace that where you know that God has forgiven you. That you have the, the peace of justification that Romans 5 talks about. That you have peace with God. You don't fear God. God identifies himself as a consuming fire. But that fire that, that he speaks of, the wrath of that moment has been poured upon his son on my behalf. And I trust him on your behalf. So I have peace with God. 
But the second thing Simeon shows us, and this is where I think a lot of believers struggle. Maybe you struggle here. In our self-centered American culture, we struggle with the second aspect of peace. We may know that we have peace with God. Now listen to this. That means I'm forgiven. I'm his child. I'm redeemed. All those things, all those truths, we know that that's all there. I put my trust in Christ. His blood is enough. I'm forgiven. But there's a second aspect of peace. And that is not just a peace with God, but a peace with what God allows in my life. The difference is vast. Simeon had peace with what God was allowing in his life. He was at peace with God. He was at peace with how God acts, with what God does. At the end of the day, whether it was a, quote, good day or bad day, Simeon could say, I'm a doulos. My will is surrendered to the will of the master. So whatever you bring my way, I've got absolute peace there. I've got absolute peace. You know, we see this alluded to, and even in Isaiah, and I'm sure Simeon had this verse in mind. Listen to Isaiah 26.3. Listen to this passage. It's 26.3, Isaiah. Speaking of a believer, it says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Does that describe you today? That kind of peace. See, here's the reality. You can, you can leave here today and say, by golly, with all that I am, I'm not going to grumble anymore. Pastor Lowell said that we're not supposed to grumble. So from this day forward, I will never grumble. Let me tell you, you're going to walk out of here. You're going to stub your toe on the concrete pillar out there, and you're going to grumble. It's going to happen. So, so how, do we, how do we live this out? How do we live this out? Well, first of all, you don't do it in your own strength. I'm going to do it with all of my might. And you are setting yourself up for failure. Secondly, we're going to grumble. But the gospel still drives me back to the cross. Say, God, my mind is stayed on you. 26.3, I love this passage. My mind is stayed on you because I trust in you. Peace with God. Peace with how God Acts. Simeon is showing that. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Again, I don't know how old he was. I tell you, verse number 28 this week, has, in the last two weeks, has meant a lot to me. Most of you probably have heard wind of the fact that it was just a few, uh, just over two weeks ago, that my daughter um, had our first grandchild. And you know, I don't see myself as this old man, but I'm definitely older. And this week, as, uh, as I thought about this passage, and I thought about this old man, Simeon, holding this little baby in his arms, because I got to do that over the last couple of weeks, and you look down into this child's eyes, and certainly the fact that she is the daughter of my daughter makes it very, very special. But Another thing that is a reality when you look into this infant's eyes is you realize that God has knit this child together. And here in my arms is a, is a worshiper of God, one made in the image of God, made to worship God, made to love God. 
who God loves so much that he sent his son for. How many of those thoughts were going through Simeon's mind as he looked into this little baby's arms and knew what his future would be? But he had peace with God and peace with how God would act. And so he sung about it. Verse number 30, let's keep going. Verse number 30 talks about another sort of aspect of Simeon's uh, song that he broke out in. First he had peace, now he has hope. Look what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. See, this salvation that, that Simeon is hoping on, he knows it is certain. His salvation is certain. And his eyes go to others as well. Verse number 31, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples. He's hoping in God's provision. Now, I want you to notice in verse number 26 what it is that he's talking about. Because, see, there was a thought in that day, especially by the aristocracy of the religious system, that God would send one to finally defeat the Romans. That God would send one to finally win politically. But I want you to notice that's not what Simeon's talking about. That's not the salvation that Simeon is talking about. The salvation that Simeon is talking about is the salvation that Christ, the Messiah, would win in his earthly ministry. Verse number 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is the salvation he has seen. He has seen the Christ who would die in his place. And it's there that he hopes it's there that he hopes. You know, this is, this is a fear I have for us as, as New Testament believers, and it's this. Oh, sure, we hope, we, we, we have a hope and, and trust that we are saved. But it's not really that significant to us anymore. It's kind of worn off, you know? It's like it doesn't really cause my heart to beat very fast anymore. The fact that I've been saved. Simeon knew he had hope in what God was doing. But it didn't end there. It didn't just end in his own hope for himself. Look where it goes in verse number 32. And this is the last point of his song. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. Where's Simeon going in his mind? Okay, he's got peace with God and peace with what's going on around him. He's got hope in this salvation that he has through Christ. But I want you to notice where his joy is. His joy is in a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You know what that is? That's the Old Testament version of the Great Commission. That's what that is. God had called the nation of Israel to himself to be a light to the Gentiles. God didn't give them himself so they could just treasure it for themselves and enjoy it. That kind of joy doesn't last. If you're counting on your salvation for you, oh, I just really love this thing, you're not going to have a joy in it. That's not where joy is found. Joy is found in investing in the Great Commission and being a light to the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are the non-Jewish people. And the Jewish people are sent by God to take the light to them so they can know that Christ came, so they can know that Christ came for their sins, so they can know that Christ came 
to pay the penalty for their sins. See, here's another reality. I think a lot of people, maybe even in this room, you think, maybe, potentially, you have this idea that people like me or, or one of the other elders come up here and we say to you, go out of here and share Christ. Share the gospel. Spread the gospel. And I really believe that some people think that we're sharing that simply out of ulterior or selfish motives. And you think maybe that, that I stand up here on a regular basis and say, preach the gospel. Share the gospel. And you might, might think ugly things. Like Lowell's just saying that, or, or the outreach group is just saying that, or the elders are just saying it because they, they want this church to grow. And so if they share the gospel, more people will come. Or maybe, maybe they want the offerings to be higher. Yeah, that's it. And if they get people in here, well, then the offerings will go up. And we get these ugly thoughts about why it is that we're calling you on a regular basis. You might get tired of hearing it. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. But here's a reality that I want you to understand. This is why we say it. This is why I urge you to, to invest in the Great Commission. Because it is in your investing in the Great Commission that your joy in your salvation, that your joy in Christ will increase. What you keep from your, for yourselves will only spoil. And it will sicken you. It truly will. Listen to this passage of Scripture that, that very rarely do we turn to. It's in the book of Philemon. See if you can find that. It's one page in your Bible, more than likely. Philemon. It's only got one chapter. It's in your New Testament. Keep turning to the right. You'll find it, but you can go right, right by it. Use the table of contents. That's fine. Philemon. Here's, here's what Simeon understood Here's what the leadership of our church understands. Here's what we want you to understand in sharing of the gospel. Philemon 1 6. Did you find it yet? I will tell you that it's a difficult verse to translate. I believe the NIV is very, a very good rendering of this verse, of this truth in Philemon. Listen to it. The writer writes, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that, pause, hold on. Active in sharing your faith so that, what? Church numbers will increase. Offerings will increase. Seats will be filled. Uh, pastors and elders will feel proud of themselves. Because, is, that, is that what this is? No. I pray that you be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. We share the gospel. And as we do, our understanding of what we have in Christ is filled up. It's filled up. It's the craziest thing in the world. You give it away. And you have more. That's the reality of the gospel. It's the person that's stingy and holds it and tries to pull it off for themselves that grows sick of it. And they don't care for it anymore. And it doesn't mean anything to them. 
but the person that's out there sharing with broken people about the brokenness of this world and how Jesus has come to bring them life. You see, you leave that conversation and you go home and you think about what they told you and you're like, Jesus saved me from that. You share the gospel with somebody who's trapped in sin and they can't get out of it. They're just so pulled down by it and they have guilt and they just don't know what to do with it. And you leave them and you think, I've been delivered from this. I can see where sin's power has been broken by the cross. It's how Jesus sustains us now as we invest in the Great Commission. Our knowledge of our understanding of what we have in Christ is increased. So I don't say share the gospel for me or share the gospel for this church. Share the gospel for you. Share the gospel so that you can understand what you have in Jesus. If you're bored, and dry it up and just, this isn't moving your heart anymore. I'm telling you, the, here's doctor's orders. You go out of here and share the gospel with somebody. Tell somebody about what Jesus has done. Go to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And share that with somebody. Let them reject you or not. That's, that's God's doing. But this passage says that as we do this, we have a full understanding of what we have in Christ. Simeon got that, see. He knew his mission was the Great Commission. A few things I wanted to leave with here. Just put it on the screen so we don't, so we don't miss them. Just to understand, first of all, this peace, hope, and joy that we've been talking about, that we sing about around Christmas, that are on all the Christmas cards there in Walmart, okay? Peace, hope, and joy rest on an expanding foundation of intimacy with Christ. That's a reality you need to understand. We need to be filling up our, our intimacy with Jesus. That's where peace, hope, and joy rest. Secondly is this, for the believer, death is defeated, yes, by trusting in the work of Christ. But I tell you, there's not much sadder than a despairing believer. Death has been broken, but they live in utter despair. So what do we do about despair? See, despair is defeated by trusting on the plan of Christ. That's where my intimacy comes in. As I grow closer to Christ, I trust Him more. And despair is given the death knell. It's, it's taken out. And then lastly, what, I, what we closed with, and that's this, that active participation in the gospel brings a fuller understanding of every good thing we have in Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your blessing and for even looking at the song of this man that, that, oh, he didn't know half of what we know, Lord. You've given us such blessing in the progress of revelation that we can see all of these things that he spoke of, why, in much more detail. Lord, let us fill up our hearts and minds 
with our intimacy with you. Lord, may we repent over our grumbling and complaining. May we repent over our selfishness with the gospel. May we repent over dependent upon ourselves. Lord, give us a Give us a newfound understanding of your plan and that we trust it. And as we look forward to 2021, Lord, that you would allow us to to just overflow with this kind of peace, this kind of hope, this kind of joy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, You know the drill, but make sure you wipe those seats down for us. Um, And have a great week this week. Let's uh, just shoot out into 21 and live for Jesus.